Well, it's good to be back with you all a second week. Uh, an old pastor once said, it's really nice to be invited a first time, uh, but to be invited back a second time is an even bigger honor. Um, so it's good to be back here with you all. Let's stand for the reading of the word from John two twelve through 25. This is John two twelve through 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You may be seated. And let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to list a few items for you, and I want you to think about what they all have in common. Maps, blockbuster video, dial-up, public payphones, VCRs, Kodak, and America Online. Uh, I'm I'm sure you've guessed it, but all of these things have become obsolete. Uh, And interestingly, only since the year 2000. So these are things I actually remember from when I was a kid. So uh, at the ripe age of 28, I'm feeling a little old here. Uh, (laughs) But we're going to see uh, a a similar shift occur in the Gospel of John today. You see, we're going to see a shift where we're moving from the earthly temporal temple to the temple that is the body of Christ. And the reason we're going to see this shift is because the earthly temple has become obsolete. 
And we're going to see the reason it is obsolete is because it is ultimately powerless to create the reality it speaks of. And so this is the main idea that I want us to keep in mind, that in the temple of Jesus' body, the earthly temple has become obsolete. We'll see this beginning with our first point, the problem of the old temple. Now, the background of our text today is what we covered last week, as you can imagine. Last week, we talked about the wedding at Cana and this miracle in which Jesus turned about 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine, the very best wine, right? Uh, Janet and I got married about two years ago, and we uh, missed the mark on this a little bit. We had about 10 bottles of Apothic red wine, which is the best $9 uh, bottle of wine (laughs) that you can get, uh, but it's definitely not on par with uh, Cana. Uh, But one of the key observations you'll remember from last week is we saw in verse 11 of chapter 2, where it says that this was the first of his signs. And you may remember that the word there for first is not just first as in a series, like first, second, or third. But it is the word for beginning in the Greek, which gives it a more prominent sense. It gives it the sense that this sign is a sign of the rest of the signs to come. That is that this sign is a blueprint or an archetype, if you will, of the rest of the signs of what the kingdom of God itself is like. And so we saw that this miracle at Cana shows us what the very kingdom of God is like, that it is one of abundant grace. It is one of overflowing joy, one in which it is depicted in a wedding scene in which there is no limits to the grace that comes to those who are the guests. That is what we saw. And we saw the opening words of the Gospel of John itself coming true in 1, 14, 16, and 17, which says this about Jesus. And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace." For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this is the background today. And verse 12 serves as a transition. We see Jesus and his mother and his disciples and his brothers coming into Capernaum. And Capernaum uh, is just a few miles away from Jesus' native Nazareth, which is also close to Cana. And so they are there for a short time. And then in verse 13, they come into Jerusalem for the Passover to be at the temple. And the thing is, is that we cannot take this situation for granted. We cannot miss the connection that is occurring between what happened at Cana with the miracle of turning water to wine and what is happening with Jesus going into the temple. You see, Jesus coming off of this miracle should lead us to ask a couple of questions. First, we must ask ourselves, why is it important that right after the wedding, we have it recorded what happens at the temple? 
That is our first question. And to see the significance here, we must consider what the Passover, Jerusalem, and the temple would have meant to those first believers. You see, Passover marks the final plague that the Lord brought upon Egypt. This is the plague the Lord brought upon Egypt to get the Pharaoh to let his people go. Right? That as the Lord was bringing these things upon the enemy of his own people, the oppressors of his own people, he brings about the last one, the death of the firstborn son, to finally loosen the Pharaoh's grip. And what is commanded, which you can go read about in Exodus 11, 1 through 10, is that the Israelite people were to take the blood of a Passover lamb and to spread it on the doorpost. And as the angel of death came over all of Egypt, he would pass over, right, over the believers in the household. And that is why they celebrate Passover, this celebration of deliverance for God's people. And secondly, we can think about Jerusalem. See, this is the location of the temple. But Jerusalem in the Old Testament also stands for much more than that. Jerusalem is always the center of where God's people would dwell in safety. It's where God's people would go for security and where God's people would go for prosperity. Right? This is the center of where they saw God working in their midst. In much of the Old Testament prophecy, in fact, Jerusalem is seen as the city where Israel would find safety, particularly in the days of the Messiah. You heard it in the Old Testament reading from Joel there. This is the prophecy, right, that if you're familiar with the New Testament, is picked up on in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and he is Preaching on this time when the Spirit is finally uh, poured out, when this prophecy is realized, the Spirit is poured out, and people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation are receiving the Spirit without measure. And they are performing these activities that's prophesied to show the possession of the Spirit. These things like dreaming dreams, right? And seeing visions. And these strange prophetic language, such as the sun being turned to, dark, to blood and such things as that. And this prophecy uh, realized, finds its capstone in verse 32 when it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. You can see how Jerusalem has this prominent sense where this is the place. This is where this uh, fulfillment will take place. So we see the significance of it. And finally, we come to the temple. This is the place where God would dwell with His people. Now we know that God is indeed everywhere. But throughout the Bible, we see this theme that God always chooses a special place to meet with His people. He always chooses a special place to be known in His grace. I mean, it's true here today. We have come to church because while we know uh, God would be with us if we were out hiking on Mount Lemmon or something like that, 
there's a special way in which God is meeting us here today. Right? There's a special way in which He is meeting us with His gospel. In which He is gathering us together as a people. And this is why Deuteronomy 12.5 says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. There you shall go. You see, this, if you wanted to experience God's presence, and if you wanted to experience it in a particularly gracious way, you had to go to the temple. You had to go where sacrifices for sin were being offered. And so these themes are the background, and these are the things I want us to have in mind. Because if you were a first century Jew, and you saw the wedding at Cana take place, and you even believed what it stood for, you believed what Jesus was trying to say to you in that time, you would have naturally started to ask questions, well, what about the temple? And what about Jerusalem? And what does this have to do with Passover? And so that is what is going on in the background for you. And that is why it's significant that Jesus goes to the temple after this miracle. And so uh, we see that uh, if you are there in the original audience, you have both of these things in mind. You would expect that this abundant life that we saw in the wedding at Cana could only be possible through the temple, through Passover, in Jerusalem. And yet, this leads to a second question. Because what if, what if the temple is actually powerless to bring about the kingdom? What if it can't bring about the kingdom of abundant grace that we saw at the wedding? You see, this is the dilemma that Jesus finds in verse 14. When it says, In the temple he found those selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, there are indeed a couple of problems here. Uh, you know, And you might be familiar with these. The first one is Jesus is targeting abuses. He is targeting the abuse of selling uh, these animals for much higher price than what they should be sold for. He's also targeting the abuses of charging too high of an exchange rate. Uh, He is also dealing with the fact that this is occurring in the temple. You see, this type of trade should not actually be in the temple itself, and it is occurring in the outer part, which we call the court of the Gentiles. You see, it's preventing the temple from being a place where believers from all over the world could actually worship the God of Israel. Right? It is preventing worship. And so these are two great problems, and you might be familiar with these, but I want to submit to you that there's actually a third problem. There's a third thing that's happening here. And we see it in verse 16. You see, when Jesus says in verse 16, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He is likely alluding to the end of Zechariah. In Zechariah 14.21, which says, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord on that day. You see, in Jesus driving these animals away, we're actually seeing that there's something much deeper happening here. 
Jesus is putting an end to the temple system itself. That's what's happening. You see, when the prophets speak of that day, they're not just speaking of any day, but they are speaking of what is commonly called the day of the Lord. And this day refers to the day when the kingdom of God would come and it would be heralded by the Messiah himself. This is the day you are looking forward to as an Old Testament believer. And so, what does this mean? Well, it means that Jesus is not just purifying the earthly temple. Right? He's not just cleaning up shop, if you will. But He's actually shutting down the temple altogether. He's putting it out of business. And you see, He does this because just like Blockbuster, America Online, and floppy disks, the temple has become obsolete. And it's not obsolete because it's unimportant, right? It's not obsolete because it wasn't necessary, because it didn't have a function. But it was obsolete because it wasn't uh, powerful to do what it was supposed to, or what it pointed to. And that leads to our next point, in which we see the superiority of the new temple. You see this in 18 and 19. The Jews say to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, Interestingly, in the previous verse, in verse 17, it is said of Jesus that zeal consumes him. And this word for consume here is not the way we use consume. You know, like my uncle is consumed with golf and watching Diamondbacks games, right? Uh, this word for consumed is the way we use consumed, like fire being consumed or wood being consumed by fire. You see, in this text, we already see Jesus going to the cross. We see that this zeal that he has to build God's house, this Zeal, this passion that is driving him to obey the Father, to do what must be done to build the house of God, will actually lead him to his own destruction. And we see the Jews in verse 20 giving their response. And this response, by the way, is the very response that you should not give. This is the way you and I should not react, because the whole point of John's gospel is driving at this idea which he says in chapter 20 that these things were written so that you might believe and yet they don't believe they don't believe they don't believe because they miss the deeper significance you see the problem friends is not that they believed in the temple too much but that they believed in the temple too little They didn't believe in what the old earthly temple was all about, that it was pointing towards a new temple. They missed this deeper significance. It's kind of like uh, when you are building your dream home, if any one of you are in that possibility. But imagine you are able to build the home that is exactly what you want it to be. You know, maybe it's over by La Paloma or something like that. Uh, And you are able to have everything that you want. And you spend so much time 
looking over the blueprints to your new home, which uh, is something else that may be obsolete, uh, is blueprints. But anyways, you're looking over them. You're so consumed with the details, so enamored by where things are going to go, what it's going to look like, what it will do, that when the house is finished, you actually don't want to move in. That's what this is like. It's like you are so enamored about this picture of what is going to be the greater thing that is pointing to that you completely disregard the house itself. That is what's happening when they miss Jesus being the new temple and would prefer the earthly temple. We see this played out in Hebrews 10. Our reading for today, Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. We see this relationship that the temple has to Jesus' sacrifice when it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, Hebrews 10 is laying out the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice. It's showing us how this sacrifice is so much more effective than what the temple could ever do. In verse 1, we see that the temple is but a shadow of the good things to come, that it cannot perfect those who draw near. And then we see in verse 4, when Jesus drives out these animals, the blood and bulls, uh, or the bulls and goats, we see that this is the very thing that uh, he is driving out. These things listed in verse 4. And why are they being driven out? Because they cannot take away sins. They cannot take away sins. But they are contrasted with Jesus and his body where He is not giving offerings or sacrifices, but He has a body prepared for Him. And we have this pinnacle verse, if you will, in verse 9, the one I want us to focus on the most. He says He does this in order to establish the second. The old covenant is made obsolete in order to establish the new. The old temple is made obsolete in order to establish the new temple. That is what we have happening here. 
You see, friends, before Jesus can be raised, before He can be the new temple, the old temple must be put out of business. It must be made obsolete. You cannot have the cross without this temple being shut down. We see this in Hebrews 8.13, which says this, In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, Jesus makes the old obsolete because it doesn't have the power to bring about the kingdom. The old does not have the power to bring about the fullness of grace. The old does not have the power to bring about the fullness of forgiveness, to bring about the fullness of new life, to bring about the fullness of the outpouring of the Spirit, to bring about the fullness of all that it means to be in Jesus. The old temple cannot do this. That is why it's obsolete. But when the new temple comes, it makes all things new. It brings new significance and it brings us a new experience. You see, rather than a life where we are living by earning, living based on our own merits, living by our own doing, we now live based on the merits of this new temple looking to what the new temple means for us. And it creates a new experience. It's captured well, I think, in these words of the author Robert Farrar Capon when he says this, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is the proclamation of the end of religion. Not a religion or even the best of all religions. If the cross is the sign of anything, it is the sign that God has gone out of the religion business and solved all of the world's problems without requiring a single human being to accomplish a single religious thing. What the cross is actually a sign of is the fact that religion can't do a thing about the world's problems, that it never worked and it never will. You see, because Jesus is the new temple, it means that Whatever efforts you are making, that is, efforts to earn something from God, efforts to earn by your own obedience, those no longer matter. Or maybe you're not trying to earn by being good, but you're trying to earn by being bad. You falsely believe that running from God is true freedom, who He indeed is the author and giver of all freedom, the author of life. And you think that running from Him is some kind of way that you can merit real life from yourself when you're actually running from the one who gives life. You see, whatever it is you're trying to do, whatever it is you're trying to earn, in the new temple of Jesus' body, all earning, all personal atoning is finally done away with. That is what the new temple means. All of our sins, all of our shame, and all of our guilt are destroyed in the temple of Jesus' body. And that's why Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, He is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. And this 
leads to our third point, that new worshipers are needed for the new temple. You see this in verse 22 through 25. You see, Jesus here is not entrusting himself to the people. And I want to submit to you that the main reason Jesus is not entrusting himself to these people is not because they're sinners, at least not in the way that we think about that. Because in the Gospels, you get all kinds of pictures of Jesus doing things that looks like entrusting himself to sinners, right? And the Pharisees got on his case about this all the time. He had dinner with sinners, right? He let women who lived as they shouldn't wash his feet with their hair. He was constantly close with tax collectors. He was spending all of his time with the very people that you and I naturally think he shouldn't be entrusting himself to. You see, I think what's really happening here is that he is not entrusting himself to people because he knows they don't understand the way the kingdom comes about. You see, you and I are constantly attracted to worldly ways of power. We are constantly attracted to thinking that bringing about the kingdom of God happens the way that worldly power happens. We are constantly tempted to fall for the slogan that the ends justify the means. That bringing about the kingdom means that we as believers must be the ones who always have the power. That we bring about the kingdom through force or through coercion or through whatever you think is assigned with a kingdom, we believe that's how it comes. And yet we see in this text that Jesus actually brings about the kingdom through laying down His life. That the kingdom of God does not come through us living our best life now, if you will, but the kingdom comes through the death and resurrection of our Savior and King, and therefore our death and resurrection. It comes in the form of us being put to death by in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, just as Jesus was. It looks like us being made new creation, who now live uh, our lives laying them down, serving, loving our enemies, rather than building our own kingdom. You see, Jesus is trying to get at the fact that this kingdom, this new temple, come about in a way that is unlike any idea of power that you and I know. It's just like his exchange with Peter. Right? You know it well. Right after Peter uh, confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus says, you know, you do well, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not shown this to you, but my Father in heaven... Right? right after that, Peter follows it up with the grand idea, uh, you know, because Jesus is starting to get into things. He's building off this idea that he is indeed the Christ. And he starts talking about death and resurrection. Right? Jesus starts to talk about how he is going to go to the cross, how he will lay down his life for the sins of the world. And Peter, you know, because he's already got one answer right, thinks he's going to, you know, try and follow this one up. 
And he pulls Jesus aside and he says to him, may this never be. May this never be that you would ever go to the cross, that you would ever die, that you would ever rise again. Because Peter is thinking in terms of worldly power. He is falling for the trap that you and I are tempted to fall for. And what does Jesus say to him that day? And what does he say to you and I this day when we are tempted to fall for that? He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. That is what he says when we try and bring about the kingdom of God through worldly power. And so we see in conclusion that this kingdom, this kingdom we learned about in the beginning of John 2, comes through the new temple of Jesus' body. We see that that is how it comes. And when that happens, we start to see that the new temple replaces the old temple. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. And that court of Gentiles that was filled with traitors, now it's actually filled with people from all nations, from all tribes who speak in all tongues. And now we look for new significance. Instead of Passover, we now celebrate the Lord's Supper. This meal which unites us to Jesus by faith and to each other. This meal which now empowers us to walk in loving service even to our enemies. That is the new Passover. And it's in this meal that Jesus says to you, no matter what your sin is, I have shed my blood for you. I have given my body for you. You see, now, instead of the new, or instead of the old Jerusalem, we look to the new Jerusalem. The one that is described in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, when it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see, every tear will be wiped away, especially the tears that you cry over your sin. That moment that you wish you could do over, the things you wish you could just forget, in the new Jerusalem, there is no memory of them. That is where we are headed. Instead, there is only joyful fellowship with our triune God and with each other. That is what we will find. And I want to just say, you know, particularly um, in light of things that have happened, you probably heard that uh, back in San Diego, where I went to seminary, at Westminster Seminary, there was a shooting at a synagogue that was done by the son of an elder in a Reformed church. And I just want to say that because, or... I want to say that in light of this text, that what we are saying is not anti-Jewish. 
It's not anti-Israel. And these things must always be said in light of such heinous things as that happening. Because, friends, you and I are not saved away apart from the temple. You and I are not saved apart from the Passover. You and I are not saved apart from uh, Jerusalem. But you and I are saved by the new temple, by the new Passover over lamb that has been slain for us, and we are headed to the new Jerusalem. You see, everything that the New Old Testament is about, everything that is pointing to, everything that is particularly Jewish about it, finds its true reality, its true fulfillment in Jesus. And therefore, it is pointing us to this new Jerusalem. And so, because we have this new temple, we have God with us, which means that God is always for us. And He is for us and with us against the shame that we feel, against the guilt that we live under, against all the things that weigh us down. Jesus is with you and He is for you. And that's why He says to you, I forgive you and I love you. And I will never let you go. And I have overcome all of your sin and all that is wrong in this world because I am the new temple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new temple. We thank you that Jesus is the one who has overcome We thank you that in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our uh, dismay, in the midst of all of our sin, that he is the temple that has been destroyed and yet rebuilt in three days. And that because he has been raised, because he has been built again, he forever stands in victory. He forever stands looking over us as the new temple who is our sacrifice, who is our Passover lamb, and he will one day bring us to the new Jerusalem. And so we thank you for what he has done on our behalf and ask that it would cause us to live uh, in a way that is consistent with his kingdom. We ask that as we go from this place today, that we would lay our lives down for those around us that we would live in light of the fact that our Savior has conquered through death itself, that we would not be afraid of whatever comes, but that we would live knowing that He has overcome all things. We ask that You would fill us by Your Spirit, for apart from Him we can do nothing. In Jesus' name, Amen.